This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, Matt Myers, MLB.com National Editor. Matt, hello. We're almost to the winter meetings, and it feels like things are finally starting to happen, right? Like Stanton's going to make his choice soon. Otani's going to make his choice soon. We have an actual interesting free agent signing to talk about Mike Myers, excuse me, Mike Miner, to Texas. Uh, we're, we're so close to activity, right? Is that, it's, is that how it's you feel starting, it? It's starting to percolate a little bit. Um, I think that uh, once Stanton... Once we get a decision on Stanton, I really think that's going to open open up the floodgates. Just because I think that JD Martinez is probably the biggest free agent out there, and so much of where he goes is dictated by where Stanton where Stanton goes, because he's not going to go to the same place that Stanton goes. So presumably, uh, his agent Scott Boris, who also represents Hosmer, Mustakis, Arietta, uh, at least somebody yeah, else too, yeah, is going to want to sort of pitch JD Martinez to you know, the quote-unquote loser of the Stanton sweepstakes and, you know, also maybe the Red Sox or whomever else. So to me, that makes sense. And then obviously after Martinez, then then dominoes really start to fall. Then you see, you know, then the other outfielders, you know, Jay Bruce, Hosmer, then yada, yada, yada. Right. Obviously, the biggest story, I think even larger than Stanton right now, is Shohei Otani and where he's going to end up. And we do have some extremely interesting Otani data that I don't think you'll have seen anywhere else. And we're going to get to that uh, very in just a second. But I think First, let's talk about Mike Miner, who did actually sign a contract today. Anytime agreed to terms, but uh, yes, reportedly agreed to a multi-year contract with the Texas Rangers. We don't know what the terms are yet. Probably, I imagine two or three years. And I find him really interesting because he's a guy. If you look at his career, you know it's it's slightly below 500, an ERA around four. Literally, didn't pitch in 2015 or 2016 because he was injured. He's not a guy who stands out to you at first, and then you look at what he did, especially in his stack cast numbers in 2017, and you're like, well, hang on a minute. This guy was really, really interesting. Yeah, I'll admit that I I, I knew he was hurt and that he had missed at least a season, but I had, had forgotten that he had missed two full seasons. Like, I'd sort of in my head, I just sort of conflated him because the, the Royals have done such a good job of sort of like cycling through guys as like and turning them into effective relievers very quickly. I just sort of like grouped him in like, oh, they've had this like four-year run, and he's been a part of that for, you know, some section of it, not realizing it was only this year. No, I, I always think of him as part of those like – early decade Braves starters with like Chris Medlin and Brandon Beachy and all those guys ended up getting hurt like they were really good for a while. Miner was a uh, first round pick a top 10 pick um, out, of, out of Vanderbilt so he was a, a high pedigree uh, prospect and and even had a, one really good season as a starter uh, 200 innings low threes ERA like this guy was looked like he was going to be a star. Yeah 2013 had that very good season uh, was okay in 2014 injured his shoulder and you know we've seen shoulder injuries like this and careers and he missed 
basically two solid seasons. So he comes back in 2017 as a reliever, 65 games, did not start any through 77 innings. And, you know, you don't need to look too deeply to see he had a really good season, right? 255 ERA is very, very good. Uh, a 262 FIP, fielding independent pitching, backs it up. It sort of depends on what traditional stats you're looking at, because you could also look at him and say, oh, he had six wins and six saves, you know, and I think a lot of people will do that. They look at his career stats and say, oh, below 500, a four ERA, who cares? Like, what are we getting here? But when you look at, at the StatCast numbers, and we always like to go back to expected weighted on base average, right? And weighted on base is basically on base percentage, except you get more credit for extra base hits. And uh, expected is it's not really about outcomes. It's about the quality of contact and the amount of contact. So it includes strikeouts and walks. And if you look at every pitcher who faced at least 100 batters in relief, and you look at the top 10, you will basically have a list of the top 10 best relievers in baseball, at least last season. So Kenley Jansen is number one on this list, right? Other names on this list. Sean Doolittle is great. Pat Nishik had a very good year. Kimbrell's there. Uh, Tommy Hunter, who is another name we'll be talking about soon, I think. Uh, uh, Andrew Miller, Chad Green. These are fantastic relievers. Brandon Morrow had a great year. Mike Miner is on that list. You know, you might not have thought about it, but the weighted on base average across baseball last year, the average was 327, and his was 238. He yes, had a this, really... This is the expected weighted on base. Uh, the actual weighted oh, on this base. this is the actual weighted on base. Uh, oh, I'm completing two different things here. Yeah. The actual weighted on base is 327 across Major League Baseball, and his expected that, weighted on base that's what I meant, yeah. is 238. Regardless of the definition, he had a very fantastic year because he struck out a ton. I, I believe when he was a starter with the Braves, his strikeout percentage was like 18%, 20%. Last year, it was over 28%, you know? So, and there's a couple of reasons we can explain why. But this is a guy, if you really look deeper, if you look at the StatCast numbers, the quality of contact, the amount of contact, he was elite. He was a top 10 reliever in baseball last year. Yeah, but the thing is, the Rangers are saying he's going to be a starter. Or I should say, since this deal isn't even official yet, the reports are... They want to use him as a starting pitcher. Right. So my initial reaction to that was probably the same as yours, which is this guy was an okay starter, hurt his shoulder, and then was a very good reliever. It, it's fixed. Don't break it again. And then, you know, so a couple things here. I did look at the Texas, uh, you know, depth chart, and Cole Hamels is their ace. Martin Perez, who, you know, throws innings but doesn't miss any bats. And then they signed Doug Fister last week, and that's basically it, right? If, if the season started today, if you don't count minor, it's like maybe Matt Bush gets converted. Uh, Clayton Blackburn, who has never thrown a major league pitch, they, they obviously badly need rotation depth. They are obviously one of the finalists for Otani, and they would very much like to add him. But the point is, I at least understand this because Texas is really, really thin in the rotation. And I think about this. You know, if he starts, it sort of depends on what sort of starter is he going to be. You know, is he going to be an old school starter where it's like, okay, you go out and you got to get me seven and two thirds. I don't love that. But if he's the kind of starter where it's like, listen, you turn over the lineup twice and, and you do a good job at it and then we get you out. I, I don't really care where the innings are, I guess, as long as they're not asking him to do more uh, than he can based on his success and his his health history. Yeah. And one interesting thing that uh, uh, caught my eye this morning was Ken Rosenthal uh, tweeted right after the um, the Cardinals signed a Miles I'm, I'd be honest, I'm not sure if it's Mikolas. Nicholas, I Mik- think, but yeah. I don't really know. I, you know, um, who's a fascinating free agent in his own right, um, was a middling major league pitcher a few years ago, went to Japan for three years, uh, just came off a dominant season with the Yamiuri Giants, signed a two-year uh, $15.5 million deal with the Cardinals, who now have all sorts of pitching depth. And seems this seems like a certainly seems like they're really trying to um, grease the wheels for a potential. I was going to say they want to send they want to send somebody in Miami, right? Yeah. For Stanton. So, so that, that's sort of a, a separate thing. But within that um, within that uh, tweet, Rosenthal said um, they wanted to add Nicholas um, um, as part of a potential six man rotation. Um, and it also uh, is interesting to me because the Rangers are 
where Colby Lewis had his rebound. Yes. And uh, Mikolas is basically sort of trying to become the next Colby Lewis, the guy who went to Japan to turn his career around. Colby Lewis had a couple of fantastic years with the Rangers before his arm kind of gave out. But um, but the six-man rotation thing interests me because, well, you know, it's a concept we've kind of discussed a lot on this show. But, of course, looking at the Rangers pitching staff, they're nowhere near having <laughs> – They don't have six. They, don't have, they, don't they have, barely have three. Yeah, for six for a, a real six-man rotation, you probably have to have nine guys on your 40-man you feel good about. Right. right now, they basically have three guys in their 40-man they feel good about, well, or four I, if you count uh, minor. I, I think about a team, you have to have a lot of depth, like the, like the Mets, right? Like Maybe you trust two of those guys, DeGrom and Syndergaard, and you don't really trust the other five to go deep, but if you trust the other five to give you like three good innings, then maybe you can make that work. But back to minor, he's a really interesting stack-ass guy. Uh, he had the fourth-highest fastball spin in baseball last year. We're talking about nearly 600 guys who threw 50 fastballs, and his fastball spin was the fourth-highest. So right, right there, that's immediately interesting. Obviously, uh, that correlates well to pop-ups and fly balls and swinging strikes and then of course his velocity jumped up he was always 91 92 with the Braves 94.9 with Kansas City obviously we see that a lot when guys go to the bullpen that's what would worry me yeah. if he moves back up in the, and we see, the thing is we see with spin rate too right we see guys when you look at like when you set the, the bar low enough most of the guys at the top of the four seam spin rate leaderboard are relievers yeah like Scherzer and Verlander may creep in there but you know Scherzer the, the best starter is like you know 25 something and he was 2604. Right. So, like, uh, RPM. So, it, it goes to show it's not just velocity, spin rate. Uh, on four seamers is also uh, gets a bit of a bump out of the bullpen. So, you have to assume that if he starts, even if he's just being asked to be a four or five inning starter, you have to knock, you know, a little bit, a tick off of the spin rate and off of the velocity. And, and it's also, you know, how does he approach it, right? When he was a starter, he would throw five pitches. And then when he went to the bullpen, he, he still threw five pitches, but three of them were very strongly diminished. He was 80% four-seam slider, as we've seen a ton of these guys. If he goes back to the rotation, does he bring back these other pitches that maybe weren't as effective? You know, and that's that's something, if you're an opposing hitter, you want to see his fourth best pitch. You know, you don't want to see the, the four-seamer or the slider. Uh, I also thought this is interesting, and this is actually your idea, and we asked our friend Tom Tango to look this up. There haven't been a whole ton of examples of a guy who was a starter, went to the bullpen, and then came back to be a starter again. So in the last two decades, uh, we only found seven examples. And the way we defined this was had at least 25 starts in a season, then had a season where he made at least 50 relief appearances, and then had another season with 25 starts. And over the last 20 years, we're going we're gonna to remember some guys here, <laughs> by the way. Danny Darwin, that was a guy. Uh, Kent Mottenfield. He was, is, he was a guy. He was a guy. Uh, Jamie Wright was definitely a guy. Miguel Batista. Uh, I hadn't thought about Kelvin Escobar in, in forever. I feel like Kelvin Escobar, in my recollection, basically went back and forth the bullpen. I don't think that's like, true. Like all, in my mind, he yeah. did. It's like I never knew what he was doing at any given moment. And then the two most interesting names, I think, on this list are John Smoltz, who is obviously you know one of the best pitchers of all time. And I think he is a great uh, way to, to compare this year because he also got injured. You know, He was a starter. He got hurt went to the bullpen while he was recovering and came back. And then also Ryan Dempster's on this list. Is there a single left-handed pitcher on this list? Uh, I believe Kent Bottenfeld may have been a lefty. I don't think he was. No, I can't really remember. I was going to see Jamie Wright, but I think I might be confusing. Jamie Wright is not. Yeah, I was confusing with Jamie Moyer. Yes. Yeah, so so uh, maybe it doesn't matter for something like this, but um, it would be it would be unprecedented, not unprecedented, but you know, in recent history, there has not been a left-handed pitcher who has... Uh, Attempt to do this, as far as I know. I'm like 95% sure Kent Bottenfield's right. Are you looking it up? I am. He's uh, a right-handed pitcher. Look at you. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> so there we go. We just uh, some live research on the podcast. So yeah, uh, no left-handed pitchers in the last 20 years has done what uh, uh, 
Miner, Miner's is suppo- to do. supposedly attempting to do. And also, I mean, looking at the Rangers now, it, it really comes into focus what their offseason is going to look like because if they don't get – even if they do get Otani, I still think if they're interested in a six-man rotation, you can't really trust Doug Fister at this point. To no. me, he's depth. Right. So it's like – and I'm not even sure much I trust Mar- uh, Martin Perez. I've heard them – Tied to Arietta, that's obviously a big spend. Arietta's from that area. I could see him wanting. He went to TCU, which is in Fort Worth. I could see him wanting to be there, but that's just speculation. The one name that makes a lot of sense to me for Texas is uh, Tyler Chatwood. I love Tyler Chatwood everywhere. I was, for the record, thinking of Kent Merker, who was a left-hand okay. pitcher. But obviously, the Rangers want Otane. So let's talk about Otane. He's the biggest news, uh, and we have, I think. A lot of interesting stuff to talk about here. We've got some. This is a show about data, and we have some data here to share. We have some never before seen, at least as far as I know, uh, in the United States. Uh, right. Uh, Trackman slash Statcast data about uh, Otani that we are going to reveal to you on this show for the first time. Now let's let's set the scene. If you're like the one person in the world who doesn't know who Shohei Otani is, obviously he is a two way player from Japan. He is a hitter and a pitcher, and he has decided to come over to America. And as we record the show right now, he has narrowed it down to seven finalists. There's three American League teams: the Rangers, Mariners, and Angels. Four National League teams: Padres, Cubs. Dodgers and Giants, one of those seven teams presumably will in the next, I don't know, 10 days or so, know that they have won the world's biggest lottery ticket <laughs> and won Shohei Otane. Yeah, and part of the reason it's, he's a lottery ticket, again, just just to give the full background, is because because of the nature of the way he uh, of his age and when he decided to come over, uh, he is subject to, he's 23 years old, he's subject to the international signing bonus rules. So basically every team has a pool they're given at the beginning uh, for the signing period, which is starts at July 2nd of every year until the next until the next until the next July, where they're given uh, a little more than five million dollars. It varies a little bit based on your um, whether or not you receive competitive balance picks. So I think the low end is five point two five, the high end is five point seven five, and you can trade for money. But once you spent the money, you can't trade for it back. But if you trade money away, you can trade for that money back. So it's it's. A very rare situation because it's not entirely about who's going to pay me the most. It's, yeah. it's like I think he will be uh, between what three hundred thousand and like three and a half million. He supposedly can throw hundred miles an hour and hit the ball five hundred feet. But those are scouting reports, uh, and so we we'll actually have some data to back this up. But I also think it's interesting here. He's got seven finalists. Four of them are in the National League and three are in the American League. And I think everybody's been thinking for a while, just assuming it's going to be the American League because they have a DH and we know he wants to hit. And maybe that's how it ends up. But, you know, I find it interesting that's not really how it's tilted right now. Most of these teams are West Coast, so that's part of it. Uh, but I do think there's a case for NL teams here. Wouldn't you say, like, to, to say that you won't get as many, like, best case scenario, yes, the DH is better for you, but there's a much higher floor here if things don't work out. And I'm not positive they're going to work out. It's really hard to do to do what he's trying to do. I mean, it's it's almost no, impossible. No one's ever really, since Babe Ruth. <laughs> no one has done it really in the in the in the you know, in the modern game. It's come close. The closest recent comp is Brooks Kishnick, who right. was a mop up reliever. Slash, he was basically a twenty fifth man who was a mop up reliever slash pinch hitter. He never actually played the field and pitched in the same game. Um, so. And that's the best, the most recent example. That he did that for two years, two thousand three, two thousand four, on really bad Brewers teams that no one really cared about. Teams are trying to create these guys now. Like the Dodgers tried to do it with Brett Eibner, uh, the Tigers, and I, th- I think he just signed with Texas. Is trying to do it with Anthony Ghost. Like these strong arm guys who probably don't really have the bat to be an everyday player, but are, are better pinch hitters than pitchers. And the Padres were most aggressive in trying it this year with Christian Betancourt, which didn't work for a variety of reasons. We'll get to later, but that is part of what makes the Padres interesting as one of the possible contenders, at least in my mind. So Otane uh, spent parts of five years 
in Japan. And uh, his career line there, 286, 358, 500. That, that's pretty good. 48 home runs in essentially two seasons of play. Uh, also very good. So the scouting reports are glowing. But I, I did find it interesting. He had a strikeout rate of 27% in Japan. And the strikeout rate there is just a little bit lower. It's a different style of baseball. So the strikeout rate in the Pacific League where he was playing uh, was 19.5%. So that's a little bit lower than the Major League Baseball rate of 21.2. And he was up at 27%. So if he comes to America against a level of pitching that's considered to be a little better, and also, you know, he's he's a rookie who's also trying to pitch and won't be playing every day. I don't, I don't think it's a stretch to say he will have some amount of difficulty trying to acclimate and will probably strike out maybe a little bit more than he did in Japan. That's a 30% strikeout rate, which is which is doable if you're Aaron Judge. And who knows, maybe he is. Uh, but it's it's a lot of strikeouts. And you can see a situation where maybe this is going to be tough for him to pull this off. The other thing to remember is that in Japan, pitchers only pitch one day a week. And that every team has a day off every week. So the, the, the ability to sort of give him spot starts as a DH is much easier. When you, you know, you know it's much easier to sort of know exactly when you're going to pitch and sort of build a schedule around days offs, you know, days off. And he's not going to have that, have that luxury. And this is why, going back to the Rangers, if the Rangers are sort of saying we want to do a six-man rotation, that's, you know, that sort of suggests to me that Otani is part of their calculus in that. If they're thinking, oh, if we get Otani, we want to use him as part of a six-man rotation to give him opportunities to DH. Because the interesting thing about the Rangers amongst his AL suitors is that um, the Rangers don't have a clear-cut G- DH, at least a player that they're, they're paying a lot of money to DH. The other two AL suitors, the Mariners, have Nelson Cruz, who they pay a lot of money to be just a DH. Their best hitter. Oh, it's uh, like Cano better, but yeah. Yeah. Nelson Cruz is basically just a DH. GM Jerry Depoto has said he is willing to put Nelson Cruz in the outfield to give Otani more opportunities to DH, but that's, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's that's bad strategy. You're 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 robbing Peter to pay Paul. <laughs> he wasn't a great outfielder when he was young, and now he's in his late 30s. It's just, I mean, I understand you're trying to, to woo the guy. This is much more like a, a college recruiting process than it is like a typical free agent recruiting process, but like to me... You're, whatever benefit is gained by getting Otani's bat in the lineup is almost certainly lost by putting Cruz in the outfield. And then you have um, the Angels. Yes, I, you could argue that they should bench Pujols in favor of Otani, but they haven't benched Pujols at this point. Pujols has paid a lot of money basically just to be a DH. He's the slowest player in the majors this side of Brian McCann. I think he's the only guy that StackCast has ranked as slower than, 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 uh, than Pujols. So I cannot see how the Angels are going to basically be benching our pools, who has no value as a bench player, um, to give Otani a lot of DH bats. Could they do it a few times a year? Same with the with the Mariners, of course, but not thirty times or forty times. Yeah, I think if I'm an NL team, uh, my pitch to Otani, aside from you know our our ballpark, our location, anything like that, uh, it centers around three different things. Right, one is simply that. Uh, as you're, if you're a pitcher, then you don't have to face the DH. And that's easier for you on the mound than it would be for an American League team. I think the second one is that you are less likely to uh, have an injury risk, right? And we've seen a lot of pitchers hurt themselves running the bases, you know? So, for example, uh, Milwaukee by themselves, they lost Jimmy Nelson, Chase Anderson, and Junior Guerra this year just hurting themselves while batting. And then I think the third one here is that, you know, we ran a lot of these numbers. There is, I think... Uh, less of a variance in how much time you'll get to hit. Like, if you look at the American League scenario, best case scenario, he hits, he's great, he's healthy all year, you probably get around, you know, 370 plate appearances. And the way we came up to that is, you know, he pinch hits once a week, he DHs like two or three times a week, and he hits for himself 
when he bats, right? And he's got to have some rest days. He's not going to play in 162 games. So best case scenario, I think, like 370 or so plate appearances. And even that, I mean, even that, like him hitting when he pitches in the American League is a big leap to make. Yes, it's possible. And he did do it in Japan um, with the help, uh, thanks to uh, uh, Jason Cosgrave, the Japan Times, who told me that in 2016 uh, – Otani did it seven times out of his 20 starts. So about a third of the time. About a third of the time. But remember, like, again, particularly using, if we're talking about a team like, you know, the Mariners. So we're going to put it, we're going to put a team where we have, let's say he's on the Mariners. We're going to sacrifice the DH, put Cruz in the outfield, and run the risk that if Otani has to come out early, even in a good start, he might come out after five innings and maybe four innings, whatever. But disaster starts could come after after two or three innings. You basically have to go to your bench for pinch hitters in that scenario where your best theoretical bench bat is now in right field playing out of position. It's terrible strategy. You know, what, do you, what do you do if you're an American League team in the playoff race and it's June and he's pitching well, but he's striking out 35% of the time and hitting a buck 50? I mean, that there's at least a choice you have to make there at that point. So I look at this as, as big variance. If it all goes well, maybe like 370 plate appearances. But if it doesn't and he stops DHing and there's much less of an opportunity to pinch hit, I, I think about 75% of all pinch hitting appearances were in the National League over the last two years. So then what? He's pinch hitting once or twice a week, maybe DHing once or twice a week. The, the floor there, I think, is pretty low. Obviously, the ceiling is high. But in the National League, I think it's different. The ceiling is not going to be as high, but the floor is pretty much guaranteed because you're always going to hit for yourself when you're pitching. And I think there's a lot more pinch hitting opportunities. Obviously, you would uh, hit for other pitchers on days you're not playing. There's a couple of DH starts a year. There's interleague play. I haven't really accounted for him playing outfield. He hasn't done it since 2014. Is it possible? Sure. Uh, but I do think you can go to him and say, listen, you're guaranteed 200 plate appearances with us. In the American League, if it doesn't work out, maybe you're looking at 25 a year. Well, the other issue is, in the, I mean, this is not really his problem per se. It's more of the, the management's problem. But I think that, like, I think that being his manager in the AL is a much greater challenge because you have to deal with a lot of these scenarios. Whereas in the NL, it's very clear cut. Okay, here's what your role, your role is. Your role is you hit when you start. You basically are the first pinch hitter. Anytime one of our pitchers has to leave early in a game, it also gives you competitive advantage because, you know, a lot of these situations, what ends up happening now in the NL is a pitcher will be in like, it'll be like the fifth, he'll be due up in the top of the sixth, pitching well, and it's like, do I, you know, he's giving me five good innings, do I take him out now, what do I do? And now when you're on the fence, now you can be like, well, I have this really good pinch hitter who doesn't actually come from my like typical like stock of pinch hit bats it's almost like a bonus pinch hitter that i can turn to in these situations to me that's a huge competitive advantage all right let's uh let's get let's get to the important stuff here let's get to the data that we have now he didn't actually play a ton last year because he got injured the year before he'd hurt his ankle uh and he had uh, ankle surgery earlier in the year so missed the world baseball classic which was going to be sort of his like international uh right it was coming dis- out. It terribly was, disappointing yeah. so last year uh he only got into five games as a pitcher through 25 and a third innings uh, he also got 231 plate appearances as a hitter. So the data we have here is based on six of those games. It's not a huge sample size, but as we like to say, uh, a lot of this stuff is based on skill. You know, I don't need a ton of sample size to know that Noah Syndergaard throws the ball really hard or that Stanton hits the ball really hard. You can't fake those things. It's not the same thing as, well, I need hundreds of plate appearances to know what a guy's true batting average is. So we have some of this data and it's actually really interesting, I think, kind of, I think most of it supports the scouting reports we've seen. So for example, Let's start with him as a pitcher. Uh, his four-seam fastball velocity, we have this as 97.5 miles an hour 
that's elite. I mean, that is, I think Syndergaard last year was the only one who topped that, and he obviously didn't pitch that much. This is basically comparable to Luis Severino and Luis Castillo, the MLB average for starters, 92.6. So right away, that is, I don't know, are we going to call it an 80 fastball on the 20 to 80 scale? It's close. I mean, that is that's elite elite velocity. I mean, if you, t- if you take it from a uh, sort of a more mathematical standpoint of like percentile, it's like 98th percentile, as far as I'm concerned, that's... Uh, that's 80-grade fastball velocity, certainly for a starting pitcher. Now, what I found interesting is that we also have his spin rate, and this tells a little bit of, of a different story, right? So his four-seam spin rate uh, in those games we had as 23.01. Now, what does that mean? The major league average was 22.55 RPM. The top guys, as you mentioned earlier, like Darvish, Verlander, these guys, Scherzer, like 2,500, 2,600. So this is slightly above average, but probably average-ish. And that's not necessarily you know, a, a bad thing. It just it tells you a little bit about the movement or lack thereof. A very high spin rate on a four seam can defy gravity, be like the rising fastball. A very low spin rate can be okay because it tends to drop more, get ground balls. Uh, we've probably talked a billion different times on this show about Joe Kelly or Nathan Avaldi, guys who have elite fastball velocity but middle of the pack spin, and they don't have any movement and they get hit kind of hard. So I think this is interesting. The velocity is clearly there. The movement maybe not so much, but also interesting. If you look at the comparables here, uh, Marcus Stroman, Jimmy Nelson, and again, Luis Severino. Now, Luis Severino finished third in the American League Cy Young. He was fantastic this year. Yeah, right around 20. They're both right around 2,300 RPMs on the average four-seam uh, four seam spin rate. And obviously, Severino manages to compensate for the spin rate with location and velocity to still get swings and misses on his fastball. So spin rate is not the only way to get swings and misses on a four-seam fastball. It helps. It's not the only way. You can – there are, other, there are other, other paths to it. There are, but I guess the way I would put it is – if I look at Severino with a 97.5 mile an hour fastball and a 2300 RPM spin rate on the fastball, and if I were to say now I know that Otani had the exact same velocity but a spin rate like Verlander that's 300 RPMs higher, that fastball would be way more interesting to me because yeah. it's faster and it has better movement on it. But if you're looking if you're looking for a, a looking for a comp for uh, Otani's four seam fastball, Severino's four seam fastball in terms of spin rate and velocity is. Basically identical. Good start. Luis Severino was fantastic. We also have a they're, little, they're in the AL Cy Young in case you missed that. We also have a little bit of data on his slider. Uh, slider velocity similar to Darvish eighty two four, Davinsky eighty two seven, and Brad Hand eighty one eight. Those are all slightly below the average. Sliders aren't really just about velocity. It's how much the velocity plays off your other pitches. Uh, but his slider velocity is approximately eighty two miles an hour. We also have some interesting uh, data on his horizontal break. Right, like how much does the pitch move from left to right and and it's similar to Brad Hand, again, and that's elite, like near the top. And we don't we don't have the exact numbers right this second, but this is a slider that moves, at least compared to what we're seeing from other guys, way more than other players. Yeah, I mean, Brad Hand's slider this year was one of the most ridiculous pitches in yeah. baseball. And I, I want to point out, I know Brad Hand is not a household name, right? But he was really, really good this year. I think we talked about him at the trading deadline. The Padres didn't trade him because they wanted the moon for it, and they they were right to ask for it. He was fantastic. He's, think, a, he's an elite pitcher. And I think he has three more years of team control. Something like that. Was... He made the all-star team, I think, or, or at least deserved to. The point is it, it is a compliment to compare this to Bradhead. Yes. Uh, we So, I mean, if we're going to start here, Severino's fastball and Bradhead's slider— Okay, that's a that's a good start. Now, we also know he wants to be a hitter. We have some hitting data as well. And again, uh, these are based on six games from Japan this year that we were able to get TrackMan data for. Well, no, he had more, he had more, he, he, he hit more games than six. 
Uh, I'm saying the data that we're talking about is from oh, got it. this sample of six games got that it. it was available from. Uh, his average exit velocity on fly balls, so this was in the 94-mile-an-hour range, so that's uh, similar to Manny Machado, similar to Ruggie Odor, Michael Conforto, Jock Peterson. Now, this is not you know not a huge sample size here either. Uh, elite here is like 100 miles an hour. That's where Judge, Joey Gallo, Stanton are. He's in the 94-mile-an-hour range. I really like Jock Peterson being on this list. I think that is a fantastic comp because I think of Jack Peterson. Well, what do I think? I think of a lefty bat with huge power, big problems making contact. And based on what we just talked about, a strikeout rate in Japan, but also we know he's got power, that, that's perfect for me. I think that's a, that's a great comp. Yeah, and that's and that's sort of one of these things where I think if, if you said to a fan, oh, he's going to hit like Jack Peterson, they'd be like, oh, that's kind of disappointing. But think about it. Realistically, if you get a pitcher, if you get – you said, here, we're going to give you Luis Severino. And he, oh, he also can hit like Jack Peterson. Yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty valuable I player. Think that. Um, so that was fly balls we were talking about. We also have this data on line drives. And it was similar to Anthony Rizzo, 96.4. Corey Seager, Randall Gritchick, all in the 96, 97 mile an hour range. Again, elite there is 100. Judge uh, Matt Olson popped up there, which I liked. And Nelson Cruz again. So maybe not, you know, top of the line elite, but certainly well above average. We're comparing him to Rizzo. And I like Gritchick too. It's another guy who hits the ball really hard. Uh, strikes out a lot. So what I found the most interesting here was on his maximum exit velocity. And we know that this is, it's a skill, right? You can't fake being able to pitch a ball 100 miles an hour, and you can't fake being able to hit a ball. Like we know that Gerard Dyson, D. Gordon, these are guys who just don't have the same skill that Aaron Judge does. So the maximum exit velocity that we have for Otani was 110.7 miles an hour. We'll call it 111 and keep it simple. That's pretty rare, right? If you look at all of the batted balls in Major League Baseball last year, 111 miles an hour of exit velocity happened 0.7% of the time on all batted balls. We had about 900 of them uh, out of over 127,000 batted balls. If you just look at it on fly balls and line drives, 1% of the time. It happened about 600 times. There were about 60,000 fly balls and line drives. So right there, you can say, that's elite. I mean, that that is not something that happens very often. There are only 13 guys who did this 111 miles an hour uh, 10 or more times. I'm not saying Otani did it 10 times, but obviously he just didn't play a full season. You know, so if you extrapolate it, it seems like he probably could. It's a skill. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that... Uh... Bumgarner and John Lester, I think, are the only pitchers. John Lester. I, I'm, I'm, don't quote me on that, but I think they're the only two pitchers to top 111 mile per hour exit velocity this year. I feel like Luis Perdomo probably should have been on that list, but there's our there's our weekly mention of Luis Perdomo. No, I was actually going to get to him in a second. Right uh, <laughs> all right. Well, listen, we had 135, excuse me, 133 hitters hit 111 miles an hour at least once. There were 435 guys who had 100 plate appearances who did not. So we can say 30% of hitters could do it, 70% could not. It appears that he is one of those 30% who can do it. So I, I feel like I'm pretty comfortable with this Peterson-Severino hand comp, and now you understand why everybody wants him so badly. I think that's interesting. Oh, also, by the way, one more thing. He's also really fast. Um, he was clocked, and this is where we're getting to the Luis Perdomo mention. There we go. Um, he was he's been clocked as fast as uh, 3.8 seconds uh, hand timing of course so this is not it would not be the official stat cast timing but hand timed uh, 3.8 seconds from home to first from the left side on a ground ball um, for a little bit of context uh, D Gordon considered one of the fastest players in baseball his max effort average so basically the average of his 90th percentile demonstrated uh, max speed and above the average of those that the his top speeds is 3.81, 3.81 seconds. So 80 speed on the 20 to 80 scale, <laughs> uh, 80 fastball velocity, something like, you know, 70-ish power, I guess, and maybe a little bit lower on contact, right? So we'll call that maybe average-ish contact. 
Um, and I have no idea what sort of defender he'd be, but it probably doesn't matter all that much. I think I understand why everybody wants this guy so much. He's really interesting. Now, we have these seven teams, and I think some of them were expected, right? The Dodgers are not a surprise. Uh, the Giants are not a surprise. The Mariners are not a surprise. It's a little surprising, given all the talk about the West Coast, that the Cubs are still in it. Um, and we already talked about the Rangers. But I think the most interesting team here, in addition, uh, the Angels are there as well, is the Padres, right? And I, I just I love the idea of him being with the Padres just because we talk about the Padres so much. If there was another way to make them more interesting, I think we would both uh, leave our families and fly to San Diego immediately and just do this about the Padres every single day. Yeah, they they, they keep gaining more steam as a contender. You know, last week, you know, there started to be a little murmurs like, hey, I think the, the Padres might be really in on this. And And what's weird is that, um, the Padres are one of the teams of the final seven that can only spend $300,000 on a signing bonus for him. So, I mean, he has a couple of teams like that already. I think the Dodgers fall into that and the Giants as well, only because they went over their um, their budgets in previous years. Under the old rules, you were allowed to exceed your bonus pool. You just would pay penalties for it. And one of the penalties was uh, you cannot sign anyone for more than – Three hundred thousand dollars for the next for the next signing period or the next two signing periods, depending by how much you exceeded your bonus by. Well, um, the new the new rules are different. The new rules it's a hard cap; you're not allowed to exceed it. So that's why if you were teams would be doing it for Otani, but they can't. Right, and fortunately, it doesn't seem like he cares. No, I mean, so so uh, John Heyman broke down the case for San Diego pretty pretty uh, pretty thoroughly the other day, and I thought it was really interesting. He made like 14 points, some of which were stronger than others. But some of the stronger ones, um, you know, what a lot of people forgot, and I had forgotten, was that uh, Otani, teams tried to recruit Otani out of high school in 2012, um, and he considered signing with a MLB team then. He didn't, uh, because Nippon Ham, who drafted him one overall, promised they would let him pitch and hit. So clearly, pitching and hitting is a priority for him. And at that time, in 2012, the Dodgers were, were one of the most aggressive teams on him. And top Padres executives, Logan White and A.C. Kurogi, were part of that Dodgers front office then. So he has a relationship with them that goes back a few years. Not to mention the fact A.J. Preller, the Padres GM, has long been heavily involved in the international market. He was with the Rangers when they got Darvish and were big player and Colby Lewis and were big play, players in Japan. So he obviously is well connected in Japan. There's there's going to be like six more reasons here. I like this one by the way. The Padres have hired former Dodgers uh, and also well-known Japanese pitchers Hideo Nomo and Takashi Saito. They work in the front office now. Yeah, and and uh Andy Green, their manager played for a season in Japan. I don't think that that having a manager who sort of understands Japanese baseball culture and customs, I don't think that that should be discounted. I think that's 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 significant in in how you're going to try and bring a player along and try and bring him into into transition his role. Yeah, and also earlier this year the Padres did hire the former trainer of the Ham Fighters. This is, you know, a man who worked with with Otani. So at least there's someone there uh, he potentially knows. I mean, I, I not just, to be that guy, Mike. It's the Fighters. They're Nippon Ham ah, Fighters. I knew that, and I, I got it right when I wrote about it. And I'm just never going to get it right when I actually. I know speak you want about it's, it. if people. And it's, I've, never, I've realized this probably sounds culturally insensitive, but it's, it's just you want it to be the Ham Fighters. Just because I that do. Sounds kind I of, so want it to be the Ham Fighters, but it's the Fighters. I, I know what's right, and I still said it wrong. I'll own that. But they they, they hired his trainer. Um, and then also, as we mentioned before, they've actually been most aggressive in attempting to use a two-way player. This year, they tried to put Christian Bettercourt in that role. It did not go well, and then he got hurt, but they were willing to try it. And they're also in a re- rebuilding mood. And I think they're moving in the right direction. Their farm system is highly regarded, but they're probably not going to win the, win, win the West this upcoming season, which gives them a little bit more flexibility, I think, to be creative. They can basically say, literally, what do you want? You know, we, we can... We, you will be the face of the team. We can work everything around you. If you want to do this on this day, if you want to do that on that day, it's not going to be a situation where like, oh, well, we've got Nelson Cruz. Oh, well, we've got 
Cody Bellinger, like, we can't fit you in. We will make this work for you. Yeah, it goes also goes to show how players make decisions when money is essentially taken out of the equation. Obviously, because a lot of what happens is, like, when it's money, understandably, players go where the money is. But we've seen, you know, for example, we've seen in the NBA when they put caps on individual player salaries – the unintended consequence of that for NBA was like super teams because players were like, well, I'm not going to chase the highest dollar, so I'm just going to go play with my buddies, right? And so now we're seeing a player's like, well, I don't really have to chase the highest dollar, so maybe I don't want to go play in New York and Boston and deal with sort of like the media circus that comes with that. And maybe I prefer, I mean, he's from a small town uh, in Japan. Like maybe he's just like, I want a low, more low-key environment and I want to be on the West Coast, presumably, other than, I mean, maybe he still could go to the Rangers or – um, Cubs. Cubs, but obviously West Coast is clearly uh, a huge consideration considering five of the seven finalists are West Coast clubs. So it's 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 West Coast. It's a team that can really use me in a two-way fashion. And that's another, and that's why the Padres make sense. Whereas, like, are the Dodgers the best team, you know, arguably the best team in baseball, really going to experiment with this? And, like, I know everyone says Joe Madden's this wacky manager, and he does, you know, he, you know, he puts Anthony Rizzo at second base from time to time and Travis Wood in left field. But, like, in a lot of ways, he's pretty conventional, and they have a really deep roster. So it's not like they're really going to suddenly, like, go get crazy with putting Otani in, in, in you know, in right field half the time or whatever. Well, so I the Padres make a, a lot of sense for, for all these reasons. What I really like is these seven teams are are seven very different teams. You know, it's not like the traditional, okay, here's the seven biggest spenders. Um, they're different leagues. They are, you know, mostly West Coast, but, you know, like we said, not all of them are. They're in different positions in terms of who's on their roster and what where they are on the win curve. Some of these teams are, we are going to win right now and we need your help. Some of these teams are like, well, we're re- rebuilding. You know, they have different things they can offer. We've just never seen this before where it's not all about the money. I, I find it really fascinating to think, the Padres could beat out the Dodgers or something like that. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah, and it's it's also it's a there's also a weird um sort of I don't know if uh symbolism is not the right word, but like basically the the one of the most famous cases and the reason we have the posting system is because of Hideki Arabu because essentially the Padres bought his rights and he was like. I don't, I don't want to go there. <laughs> and he basically, like, he pulled an Eli Manning and was like, I refuse to play in San Diego unless you trade me. And so they they worked out a deal with the Yankees. Ruben Rivera, then one of the top prospects in baseball, although I think even at that point his, his star started to, has started to fade a little bit, was traded to the Padres along with others for Arabu because Arabu refused to play for the Padres. And now we have a player who's basically said, no thank you to the Yankees, no thank you to the Red Sox, and may go to the Padres. Based on the data we have, we may be looking at a Jock Peterson type who can pitch like Luis Severino, uh, and that's fascinating. And I'm hopeful that by the next time we speak, we will know where he's going to end up, because that's the biggest story in baseball right now. Uh, Winter meetings are next week. I can't wait to find out. That is our show. I am Mike Petriello. That's Matt Myers. Thanks for listening to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. 
We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.